Hello, I'm Mark Evans from Rose Tattoo and previously ACDC, and you're listening to Radio Carum. Stay tuned. You're listening to Rowan Prant Method, where myself and a unique guest discuss topics that I'm interested in and that you might find relevant to your life. On today's episode, we have David Ross Burrow, who is the National Director of the International Bodyguard Association and a longtime friend. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Rowan. Thank you for the invite. Very happy to have you here, mate. So everyone, we have had some time off. I've been very busy with a couple of other projects. Very happy to be back for episode 36. So David, you've got a very long story. A lot of experience in the security sector, obviously bodyguard scene, then you know, stepping into boxing as well in the Masters. Yeah. Tell us about your background in security. Yeah, well, it started uh, 25 years ago now. As I said, uh, I'm a, I was actually a butcher by trade. <coughs> and uh, yeah, left school at 16 and completed a four-year apprenticeship and six years fully qualified. There's always a natural draw towards the security industry. Um, I did do a bit of work prior to getting in the industry to help out and uh, my dad actually you know, was a bouncer back in the 70s and 80s, uh, kind of grew up in that era and uh, yeah, joined the security industry in, uh, in 1998, uh, but it was to get into bodyguarding. Yeah. I uh, developed a bit of a, uh, a keen interest in it and uh, I remember reading a magazine, I'm not sure what the magazine was, it was probably a, a firearms magazine or something, and there was an article there, a guy had written about working as a bodyguard and he was an ex-soldier. Uh, and stuff, and I just went, wow, wouldn't that be something? Yeah, to be able to work as a bodyguard. Now, I was gifted with a bit of size, yeah, yeah that <laughs> a you are. bit of presence, and, uh, and it just sparked my interest. So, well, how do you do that? Do you have to be military? Do you have to be policing, et cetera, et cetera? And I looked into it, and back then here in Victoria, there was actually no licensing for bodyguarding. Okay. Uh, but you had to have a security guard's license. So I said, oh, beautiful, I'll go do my security training uh, and uh, hopefully get into that. And uh, that was in 98. And I uh, went through advanced techniques training, which trained about 80% of all security personnel at the time. And uh, through that, I you know, became a crowd controller security guard. And that's all I really needed to, to hold. But then I was uh, invited by the uh, by the lead trainer and the owner of the organisation, Tony Zalewski, who's uh, still one of my uh, very close friends and mentors. And he said, mate, we've got this program uh, next year, uh, in February next year, from the International Bodyguard Association. Uh, it's professional development training because, A, there was no licensing requirements. Um, you, you should do it. And I went, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, completed some more training through the end of 98, went back and uh, became a member, uh, uh, completed my first diploma in uh, 99, February 99. So February next year is 25 years. Wow. Yeah, I go through. So that was fantastic. Continue my training and building up, um, you know, qualifications and experience. Um, you know, experience is one thing you got to get out and do it, but you've also got to know what you're doing. So it's about having, making sure the training was structured correctly. And I was so lucky and I do touch wood that I, uh, I just had a lot of really good trainers early on. Uh, the National or the uh, Director General of the Association, James Short, uh, was an Irishman. He'd, he'd fly out to Australia to run the course. Unfortunately, uh, James passed away earlier this year. Sorry uh, which is, Yeah, it was a big loss to the association, but uh, internationally we've, we've kicked on uh, and moved on. And I just kept going back and redoing my training and, and building up the hours and I was lucky enough to be able to you know, work in that field as well. Uh, then in 2005, uh, bodyguard licensing came into effect in Victoria. So I was actually already working like six years <laughs> in that field. So a pioneer essentially of bodyguarding. Yeah, I was, it was people before me and you, you go back to um, Bob Jones. Yeah. Uh, we always say Bob Jones was the grandfather of, of IBA bodyguarding or, or bodyguarding yeah. in Australia. He, he rolled with the Rolling Stones back in the you know, 70s and you got the Dave Hedgecocks of the world. Um, I know both of those guys personally. Um, so no, nowhere near the pioneer, but I was able to grab onto those coattails of those guys yeah. and really continue. But I made a career out of it 
a lot of people come and go. You know, they spend a few years in the industry and go. I kind of stepped into the industry. I haven't stepped back. Uh, go through. So continue through. Then in 2009, uh, so it was about my 10-year anniversary, uh, Tony Saluski, who was the National Director, uh, stepped down. And uh, yeah, I received the phone call from our uh, Director General at the time uh, and asked me if I'd take over as uh, as National Director, which I was completely honoured and blown out of the way. Because yeah, even even now, I still see myself as a student. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're given these responsibilities to head up a yeah the Australia head of Australia and oh wow, and I took it on board and yeah, and that's been since 2009. What are we now? 2023. I just can't believe the uh, the time. But that's a quality of anyone that's in a teaching role. They're always looking to learn and develop skills Definitely. along the way. They don't think that the work is already done and they know it all it's a, it's a great skill to have mate i still love being a student as much as being a, a trainer yeah you know, and i got into you know workplace training in 2005 too so i worked you know for six and 18 years as a security trainer and bodyguard trainer and as you know firearms and yep. yeah as, uh, history for everyone watching at home and listening to the replay uh, Dave actually taught me my firearms uh, probably 10, 11, maybe 12 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, probably, yeah city, at least then. Great. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. I still remember the course. Was that good? And, yeah, coming from yeah, my background and always being physical and hands-on, anybody like yourself that came along and they had that martial arts background or, or combat type of background, I used to get on with all the time. Yeah. And it wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't surprising. We, we linked up and we stayed in contact ever yeah, since course. that course. Definitely and, um, peace in a pod, mate. It's interesting. I, it. I wanted to be a bodyguard myself at one point. And, a big part of it was uh, having a conversation with you as well. Fortunately, my life took me in other directions when I uh, had my daughter. But yeah, it's a, a very interesting thing. And I'd love to get into a little bit later down in the episode about some of the things that you've been running in terms of bodyguarding because there's some really interesting findings with it. But in terms of security, what have you seen change over the years? And, and even carry that over to bodyguarding as well. There's been both good and bad changes. Yeah. Um, the good changes is that it's lesser violent because yep. security handles situations a different way. Um, the bad part is, is you got told not to do anything. Mm. Yeah, you know, so many clients are worried about uh, litigation now. Um, so many people want to sue somebody else, you know, because you put a hand on them. Yep. So it's kind of clipped security in a lot of way, which means that we lo- lose the, the presence and the, the operations. And I always say there has to be an enforcement part of law enforcement. You can't have law without enforcing it. Yeah. So once you take away the enforcement part, what's the law? You're you're asking someone to follow it and they don't. So when they're not following it, you've got to be able to enforce it. Uh, And I I feel VicPol don't enforce the law enough. Yep. Yeah, and when they take that enforcement part off, people go, what are you going to do about it? It's very true. If you look at anything like that, particularly when you're faced with a violent encounter. Yep. If there's no threat of violence and they're prepared to go further than you are or they have the capacity to go further than you are based on the law, then they don't really care what you're saying. That's they're not going to follow instructions. When, you, when you've got one you know, group being security following the law and justification use of force, and we went through that one of the other episodes with our good friend Carl. Yep. Um, when you've got one group following that, then a criminal doesn't care. Yep. He, he's not following 462A of the Crimes Act. He doesn't care about powers of arrest, yep. fines, committee, or anything like that. So you kind of get stuck in the middle going, hang on a minute, I need to be do A and B, but this person's doing C. Yep. So how am I going to do that? So a lot of clients now are asking for observe and report only from a security perspective. Um, I don't agree with it Yeah. Uh, because prevention is what you should be doing. Yeah. Um, we've had incidents of late where security have sat in a car and, and videoed somebody breaking the law or damaging the client's property, but that's what the client wanted. Really? Yeah. So they don't stop didn't the actual crime didn't get, out the, didn't get out of the car? I've, I've known many locked security the, guards that have locked themselves locked behind the doors. Car. Yeah. They locked the car when the person realised he was getting filmed and, uh, and moved towards the car. 
yeah, uh, and did nothing. And the camera got broken, the property got broken. And my first question was, hang on, there was two of you guys and one of him. Why didn't you get out? And you're not talking about get out and rough him up or anything, but show a presence. Oh, no, no, we got, just got told to report, observe and report. About the whole observe and report mm. process. That's, but a that's very loss prevention as well. Is, has that stemmed from potentially certain security guards that didn't have the skills necessary to de-escalate and maybe put a limit on the force that they use in a certain situation and they've gone, look, we just don't want any interference. That's what it's come down to, mate, social media. Yeah. Clients just don't want it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I worked for a, a company up until last year for four years as a state manager, uh, working for some of the biggest retail brands we have here, and they'd prefer, you know, when I say prefer, they obviously don't prefer any theft, but they'd prefer $800 of product to walk out than to have a security guard wrestling with somebody at the front of the store and somebody put it on social media. Ah, because that nice. that hurts them more than that $800, which is insured, written off, shrinkage, et cetera. But bad publicity of a, a security guard grabbing somebody at the front of a big brand and the, the, the big logo in the background, mm. um, people viewing it and all that, that hurts them more. Yeah. Right, so they just get told, ask for it back. If they don't give it back, not much you can do about it. Yeah, that makes and, a lot and we of just sense. kept getting told, write it up because as long as it's written up as a report, it's an insurance claim. Yeah, that'll be a very frustrating. Position it is. To be in. It is when you've been in the industry a long time. Like you get a lot of the guards that are may, yeah, they may have been three, four, five years in, but they're into that era. Yeah. So they don't know any better because yep. since their training, since they came in the industry, that's what they know. It's the guards that have been 10, 15, 20, and in my case, twenty five years that did security a different way. Um, and it's bred into us that way of prevention. Mm. That's what we're there for, to enforce it. Now, we're not Victoria Police. We're not police officers. We're security officers. Right? So I see a lot of our role, yeah, as much as we enforce the law, yeah, powers of arrest, um, justification, use of force, theft, trespass, we're actually policy and procedure enforcers. Mm. <laughs> we're there to enforce the policy and the procedure of the workplace. Yep. And that might be entry, entry requirements, what's the policy and procedure, uh, acceptable levels of behaviour. We're there to police that. Uh, obviously, with uh, retail outlets, the policy and procedures, you want something, pay for it. Yep. So our role is to make sure that if you want a product, you're paying for the product. Well, essentially, you're there for the safety of everyone and everyone's 100%. Involved. So it should be a smooth process if yeah, everyone's following the policies and procedures. Mate, if everyone followed everything, we'd probably be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Now, how does that compare to something more serious like armor guard or even bodyguard where there is a real and impending threat and there is a danger compared to something else that maybe just preventing a you know a lowercase theft or someone's yeah a first thing we'll separate that because it is actually two separate industries because when we talk about armed guarding or cash and transit that is carrying a firearm yep bodyguards don't carry firearms within australia really yeah not as a bodyguard okay um it's just our laws that doesn't allow that uh, go through so there are different areas there to cover so we can't cover both of those in the same topic yep. so when we talk about um armor guard as you, you said or you know pro secure brings used to be around a lot of uh, cash and transit companies and uh, i worked for one of those as the firearms trainer you know, many years ago um you're carrying a firearm purely for the protection of property mm. not for the protection of life really yeah victoria police carry a firearm for self-defense security don't Security only carry a firearm for the effective control or protection of the property. What? That's <laughs> if they're shooting Tell at me. you, it doesn't matter. But then when I say, hang on, my role as a bodyguard right, is to protect persons, they go, oh, no, you can't carry a firearm for that. Yeah. So I may say, listen, there's actually five activities within the security industry that you're permitted to be licensed and work within. So you've got your crowd control, security guard, 
bodyguard, investigator, and private security trainer. Mm. Nothing says I can only work in one of those roles yeah. at any one time. So I've been in situations, and I've covered this with licensing many times over the years, where you might say, well, I've got this very big threat to my life, and it's a very real threat. Uh, an attempt may have been made, so we call that a known threat because they've already made an attempt, where the risk assessment actually says oh, you should be armed. Yeah. Right. So I say, no, drummers, you can hire me as your private armed security guard to protect your property. Yeah, so a big wristwatch or something. Yes, that wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't be the first time I've asked someone to go down to the jewellers and hire a watch to wear. Yeah. Yeah, or that doesn't have to be a money value as in a watch. Um, one of my clients, um, big millionaire, uh, paperwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he'd work from the office in his home, so he'd transfer his paperwork with him backwards and forwards. That paper and the information on that paper was very valuable. I find it really interesting that they place a high regard for property over a human life. That's the justification to carry, not the justification to use. Yeah. Because now I'm going to throw a spell in your works. You cannot use your firearm to protect the property. Really? So you can just carry it? Interesting. But anyone that looks down and reads this, and yeah, obviously with the international bodyguard, I deal with international people and they come to Australia and I yeah. try to explain the armed laws to them, saying you can carry a firearm to protect the property, but you can't use a firearm to protect property. Mm. You carry a firearm to protect property, but you can only use it if you receive a real and impending threat to life. Yeah. As a bodyguard, my job is to protect the real and impending threat to my client's life, but I'm not permitted to carry a firearm for that. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very... It's very difficult for the law enforcers or the security guards <coughs> or anyone really involved that's in the protective and helping relationship. It's a hard position. It is very hard. But, yeah, we are still very sheltered here in Australia you know, in a lot of ways. Um, I, I get often a lot of phone calls regarding bodyguarding and somebody needing some protection. And when the third or fourth word out of their mouth is, oh, I want an armed bodyguard, the, the, the little <laughs> lights start flickering and go, why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're living in Melbourne here or Victoria or whatever. I'm not saying it's not required. Yeah. Um, but what the first thing, in? yeah, what are you involved? <laughs> then they go, oh, no, nah, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah, and you go, oh, right. So, you know, nothing's really happened. You've done nothing wrong, but you're asking for an armed bodyguard. Yeah, so what red makes flag. a good guard? What would make, in looking <clears> at a, just a, a quality security guard, what qualities do they need to have? First things first, mate, they want to, They need to want to be a security officer. Yeah. And why and, do they want to be a security guard? What's the thing that comes up the most? I don't know. To me, it was interesting. Yeah. You know, it was a change of left field to what I was doing. Um, but I made the commitment. I wanted to work within security. Now, over the years, and especially with workplace training, funding came in uh, to the security industry yeah. or, or the vet uh, set, sector training. Then all these people got told, you want to keep your dollar payments going or you're, you're suddenly yeah. got to do a course, we're going to put you on a security course. Similar thing that's happening in disability right now. And, and we just got so many people flooded the industry that don't want to be a security officer, but they got told to be there. Eh, they can make some money out of it, yeah. so why not hang around? Yeah. So there's a big difference between somebody who wants to be a security guard uh, yeah. and somebody that's doing a security shift just for the, the dollars. I think that's relevant to any profession in life as well. I, a lot of professions are coming to mind when you can see someone who's truly passionate and emotionally invested in the job and someone who's just there to collect a paycheck and mm. really doesn't care. The problem with that is where you might have said disability and all that is we're dealing with threats to life. Yeah. You know, majority of the time or, or partial of the time, 
You're there to back up each other. You're there to protect the public. There to protect property. So if your heart's not into it, mm. yeah, and the buttons get pressed, and yeah, unfortunately that day is not your day. Mm. Um, yeah, this is where you find out. Well, am I in the deep end? Yeah. Yeah. Do I really want to be here? And uh, yeah, over the years I've worked with so many people that talked it up, uh, and after the very first big incident, I never came back to work. Really? They, they worked out pretty quickly that, hey, this is not the industry for me. It's, yeah. it's a bit like boxing, mate. I, I, play, uh, I play sport, but I don't play fight. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, if you want to play security, you've got to play security at the end of the day. Yeah. You can't play security and not expect it yeah. one day. Uh, not that it happens very often anymore. Honestly, mate, I couldn't sit here and tell you the last time I had to throw a blow in security. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't tell you. But to be fair, you are six foot five and 127 <laughs> kilos. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so the presence is there. It's, it's an interesting one. So obviously- but, but if, we, if I went back 15, 20 years ago, I'd be telling you every week. Yeah. That's the difference. So has that changed with the culture? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so yeah, people settle down in your opinion? De- definitely both ways, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I remember when I first started changing when I was still working the clubs and managing the clubs and that. Uh, the first thing we did when I took over as security manager at venue, I said, before we can ask the patrons to change their culture, we've got to change our culture. Love that. Yeah, and we had to change our approach to the, the situation. Yeah. So too many people focus on the situation and the potential outcome. Well, hang on a minute. That's going to be dictated to by your approach to it. Mm. So if you concentrate on the approach to contact, then obviously the, the next step is going to be a lot more controlled. How do you spread that and have the ripple effect that that carries over like as a collective amongst guards? Because obviously there's a point where, you know, you've made this decision and people get very much stuck in, you know, the bouncer mentality back in the day, mm. which is just ran people's heads through the doors on the way out and then shifting. How do you shift that? Unfortunately now, uh, based on a lot of the training, is uh, what we call a sausage factory, mate. They just get pushed through, yep. uh, ticked off, um, depending on the quality of your trainers. Like obviously when I was working as workplace trainer, I'd be pushing that a lot harder. Yep. A lot of it happens in debriefing now. Mm. Um, we haven't had time or the guard hasn't been trained correctly. We haven't got time to train them before a job and all that. So something happens and you might get an opportunity to sit down afterwards and say, buddy, <laughs> The way you control that, the way that you moved in on that, your first words out of your mouth were, were challenging words. Yeah. Um, you actually escalated the situation. Mm. Yeah, and once you've escalated, as you know, it's very hard then to de-escalate. Yeah. All right. So I've always try to say, mate, concentrate on the approach to contact. You know, yeah. The, the contact. Uh, what happens after that is going to be dictated to a lot of the way by your approach to it. Can you talk about communication skills and de-escalation? Because it's such an important aspect when it comes to anything like this in a confrontational situation, particularly with all the rules and things that you have applied to yourself mm. and you don't want a severe outcome to actually take place. How do you navigate around that? Yeah, well, they often know a term that gets thrown around a lot is a verbal judo. Yeah, I've heard that a bit. <laughs> yeah, and I heard a lot of people say, hey, I've got a video of an old guy from a, an incident happening in the, in the casino in WA and he could, I don't know how many times he used the phrase verbal judo. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes through and I say, yeah, I've got a black belt in verbal judo. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely uh, a, a trick. Uh, I'm a probably lucky in a way uh, having the gift of the gab, uh, yep. being a butcher by trade. Uh yeah, from the time I was 16 years old, I was on the, the microphone spruiking. Yeah, the front of the shop or in the uh, Safeway. I was going to say Woolworths, the Safeway yeah. back then. I yeah. still call it Safeway. Yeah, <laughs> come on down, shoppers to the meat department. we got legs of lamb walking out the door. <laughs> yes. Yeah, love it. So and it was very funny. I started in, uh, when I did my security course, I finished on the Friday, got my licence. I started the Saturday night in the old baby grand out in uh, Mooney Ponds. Uh, all in brawl the first night. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm still doing it 25 years later. So that might tell you something about my mentality. Yeah. Um, but I remember only three or four, about week three, I think it was, I was working with a bloke on the door and it was the first time I'd met him. 
and uh, a couple of guys came up. We had a, a smart dress code, which is versus <laughs> what's your bottoms versus your tops. Yeah. So if you had a polo shirt on, you had to have black slacks on or, or slacks on. If you had jeans on, you had to have a full button shirt. You had to have dress shoes. So you had to be a bit of a fashion guru at the same time as working at this dress code. And these couple of guys came up and I was just standing there. So, mate, you know, you need full colour shirt and da-da-da. And I just dealt with them. And they turned and walked off. So, yeah, no problems, mate, and turned off. And the guy next to me turned around. And he goes, um, oh, how long have you been working this job for, mate? A few years now? I looked at him and I said, I got my licence three weeks ago. Mm. And he goes, oh, you're joking, aren't you? So I was really lucky coming from that retail aspect uh, of having those communication and loving the chat and yeah. being able to uh, talk. Um, it's funny, so many times I'd be standing there and uh, something would be, then I'd say something, it's like, oh, shoot, the big guy can actually talk. Yeah. You know, he had that uh, you know, knuckle dragger. You know, the big guy was just there to drag his knuckles and whack them. When you can learn to talk to people and de-escalate, um, the correct selection of words are really important. I mentioned before challenging words, mm. you know, and you've got to try to avoid those challenging words. Uh, sorry, mate, you're drunk. Yeah, you know, you're okay. intoxicated. Yeah. Right, because that's challenging you. You reckon I'm intoxicated, mate, should have seen me last week. Yeah. You know, and all you're doing is challenging it. You, I've heard people on the door of clubs go, no way in hell you're coming in tonight. So how can you curve that? How would you rephrase those two examples that you yeah, gave me? Uh, appear. Yeah, yeah, always say, mate, you just appear a bit intoxicated at the moment. Yeah. No, I, I said, come over and have a chat then. And let's have a look. You appear so, so explain to me why your appearance is something other than intoxication. Yeah. Um, I've always used, and I uh, love it, and I actually learned this from my very first boss, uh, the higher authority clothes. Mm. So it's not my decision, it's the boss's decision. <laughs> <laughs> always blame somebody so else. So everyone that's heard that, <laughs> you know. Uh, I remember as a first-year apprentice, and you know, I was lucky at 16, I was a big guy. Yeah. And uh, we were at uh, the old Glen Shopping Centre, you know, yep. the old Glen, not like it is now, and uh, somebody came for a complaint about something they brought, and the boss was flat out. He goes, Dave, can you – and they'd asked for the meat manager. So he goes, Dave, can you go sort that out? I was like, yeah, yeah, no dramas. So I walked out, so I can out. She goes, are you the meat manager? I go, yeah. Now, she believed in it. Now, soon she believed I was the meat manager. I was the highest authority person. She talked and I said, yeah, I can fix this up and I'll give you a discount and, and did it. Yeah. Right, so every time I refused someone, I just blamed the boss. Yeah. You know, classic, there was a, a few weeks ago, I was doing a private function. Yeah. It was just a house party, a 15-year-old house party. She had two older brothers there. He was 18 and 21, really good kids too. And uh, one of the kids, he'd had a couple before he came and I think he's more showing off than anything else. But I've walked up and I've gone, mate, it's time to go. Oh, you're joking. I said, sorry, mate, the host has asked for you to go. They've just asked me to do it. The host was the 18-year-old brother. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd only kind of pointed him out to me. He walked out and, rah, rah, and a couple of times he came up and, oh, can I come back in? I said, sorry, mate, the host has said no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as he's thinking, it's not my, I said, mate, you're just putting the pressure on me now. Keep asking me. I can't change that. Yeah, the boss has said. Yeah, the boss has said, mate, the host has asked you to leave. I said, mate, I was just the messenger, buddy. I was, it was my role just to you know, walk you out. But it, with <clears throat> everything you're describing, I would imagine just from my experience, which is limited, you're very much like a unicorn guard because – when I, you know, obviously I was taught firearms by you, but when I started doing some private security, just at private functions, I was often on the door because I could handle myself mm. and I could communicate. Uh, and wasn't, a, you know, if something did escalate, I had the capacity to handle it with the stress as well. When I then went into running events myself, particularly in the fight industry, it was very hard to find good guards. I often got people that had a presence but couldn't communicate. So they couldn't actually talk to the patrons. Or the other end. Or the other end. But even worse, some of them were tiny and couldn't communicate Mm. at all. I'm not going to say who they were or what company it was. 
And it often led to issues because of the lack of ability to communicate and they didn't have the physical presence. So essentially they were just a person standing there that really wasn't accomplishing anything. It was a very frustrating position to be in as someone hiring guards. Mm, definitely. And yeah, I always look at all my careers in different you know, five-year blocks and how much I changed from my first five years. But it's like anything in business, mate. Yeah, it's amazing what you know after five years to what you didn't know at the, fr- at the start. Yeah. yeah. And, and where are you going to be in another five years, Yeah, where, where I'm going to be. Then it got to the point because I got into workplace training. I think I was in the industry for seven years. Yeah. And uh, opportunity opened up and it was something I thought later down the track, an opportunity uh, opened up to get into uh, to workplace training as a trainer. And I did that. Then I started taking that training role a lot more on site. Mm. Uh, then I got away from the clubs and that for, for many years, uh, just concentrated on the corporate work and arm work and body game. And then I kind of went back in the clubs and I actually enjoyed it better because yeah. I re- did really go back in there with that training mindset as well as operational mindset. Yeah. And uh, everyone's there, there's got four security, you're all getting paid. Everyone's got to do some work. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's easy for me to say, okay, I'll be the key communicator tonight. So any situation, I'll be the key communicator. Hang on a minute, someone needs to be the enforcer. Mm-hmm. Well, hang on, that's a good role for me too. <laughs> and I just say, guys, I can't be the key communicator. I can't be the enforcer. I can't be this guy. And you guys all stand around and do nothing. Moral support. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll play the enforcer role, yep. but I need you guys to step up as the communicator. Yeah. You know, and I'd grab some of the younger guards and uh, you know, guards from different nationalities I might be working with. I said, it's a person over there levels of intoxication is too high, we've got to ask him to leave. I said, I want you to do it. And they look at you with eyes like dinner plates. What so what do they expect they were meant to do? Yeah, that's it. This is what I'm talking about. I said, but it's okay because I'm going to be standing right behind you. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to walk across with you, but I need you to do the talking. Because if I go across and do the talking, then it breaks down and I've got to walk the person out. What are you doing? You're getting paid. Well, I hope the employer is paying you for this teaching role that you're in in this position <laughs> while you're educating people in the industry, which is a great <laughs> thing. And, uh, are you still teaching at, or running at, training at the end, sessions? At the end of the day, uh, you don't expect to be paid for it. But if I could teach somebody to be a better security officer that was going to have my back, yeah. that's worth it, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's yeah, that's, the whole that's industry the whole as well. Idea. Yeah. It's better for it the community It's great with female too. guards. I used to love working with female guards and I'd get them to do the communication. Mm. Yeah, and we always say when you have a situation, there's got to be a key communicator. And a lot of people don't understand what a key communicator is. It's the person who's going to do the talking. Because yeah. so many times you've got three or four security respond and all of them want to be the talker. And you've got this guy saying here and here and here and here. The poor person's like, who's talking to me? So I say one key communicator, everybody else is either in position for observation, backup, you know, or in my role, the enforcer role. So I'd take a, a certain position. Uh, so I was right in front of the person, he could see it. But then once communication broke down, then I could actually then communicate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Interesting. It's good to see that everyone is essentially a team, same as anything where Has people are playing different Has roles. Has to be. Has to be. Yeah, mate, you, you don't survive in group security without working as a team. How would this compare to something like bodyguarding? When you're bodyguarding, where a lot mm. of the work you had other guards or was it exclusively nah, you? No, see, bodyguarding is different, especially here in Victoria. As I said, we're quite sheltered at times. Uh, I've only worked a, you know, a handful of jobs that are two, three-up type jobs. A lot of people, it's just a one-up job. You know, so you're working by yourself. Uh, so you're the advanced section guy who needs to try to advance and clear the next subject. You could be the driver. Mm. Yeah, and you've also got to be the escort team. Yeah. You know, you go through. So it's really multi-skill in that. Um, but, you know, you're talking about a real low level of threat for that to happen. You know, once it starts to get to a, a medium level of threat, you know, you're asking for a second. But then what you need to do is be really resourceful. Uh, and a lot of places you go to these days have security there. 
Right? So trying to use the security of that uh, venue. I don't know how many times I've gone into a nightclub or a spot and I'll grab the security straight away. So, mate, who's your head of security? Send him over to talk to me. You know, mate, got a, a client here. We stopped in for a few drinks, da-da-da-da-da. If something happens, I'm going to have to get them out, make sure your guys don't grab me. <laughs> right, where are you going? And suddenly you might have two or three security stationed where, you're, where you are. And you go, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how it goes. But at the same time, I've worked in venues as security when that's happened. Yeah. You know, go through and uh, one of them I'll straight off the top of my head was uh, one of my close friends. I actually knew the, uh, the CPP. Um, brought in Delta Goodrum. Mm. Uh, it was after a big, uh, big race meet. And we're in the, the venue, and rah, rah, and a straightaway mate, need to go bathroom yet, we'll get you through the crowd, rah, rah. Then everyone realised that she was there and kind of you know, crowded that area. So when he come out, so mate, go out through the back, I'll open the side door, we'll get her back, da, da, da. So having that venue knowledge uh, yeah. of what door to use, how to get people in so and out of venues. So would you prepare all this before you were going to attend a venue? In a perfect world, yes. But yeah. when the client says, I want to go there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you're just going to assess Yeah, it was one of the funny things, actually one of my uh, bodyguard courses uh, I was doing with James Short. We're just walking down Chapel Street. So it was actually a training exercise. So we had two cars, uh, three cars, six bodyguards. So we had two people in an advanced section, two people in escort, uh, and two drivers of uh, the two vehicles. Uh, so I was the number one. Uh, so I'm walking down Chapel Street, and he, we'd already interviewed him. Where do you want to go? Wanted to have dinner here, and da da da. We're walking down there, and just because he's, he's Irish, he sees the Irish pub, hears the Irish music, and goes, I want to go there. It was just like, oh my God. <laughs> like, it threw the whole plan out. But that's yeah. what happens. Yeah. Right, so I brought my number two up and straight away I said, mate, we need to make this happen. And he was like, uh, uh. I said, mate, you stay with the principal, I'll make it happen. Yep. Right, so he stayed with the principal, I ran across the road. Can I please, uh, the later female guard was there, I said, sorry, no disrespect, but can I talk to your head of security? He come over and even though it was a training course, we had to sell it as a real job. Yeah. And I said, mate, you know, I've got a, a principal out here, he's out from Ireland, he's heard the Irish music, can we come? Mate, there's like a line of 25, 30 people to come in. Yeah. And uh, just as he said yes, a fight broke out right on the door. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just standing there going, yeah, this is really what I want. And this guy gets up and starts having to go at me. And I'm like, buddy, I've got nothing to do with this. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> they accommodated us and we brought him in and upstairs and uh, give us a little VIP area upstairs where the band was. And uh, I think the first few rounds of drink we weren't even charged for. Um, and James was having a great old time dancing away to his Irish music. And I was kind of standing where the door, there was an open door just to get some fresh air. And suddenly all these Security are coming up, asking me questions. All right, mate, you must be highly paid for this. And rah, rah. I didn't have the heart to tell them I was on the training course. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, mate, yeah. But what it meant is we sold it. Yeah. Yeah, we, we sold the, the training course as it was real. Yeah, yeah. And we were there. It was a great old night. And even the next day, um, we were at James home about you know, four or five in the morning or something like that, went into training the next day. It was back there at 0900. And uh, he thought I actually knew the security. He goes, oh, I did you used to work there or something? I go, no, not at all. He goes, oh, you obviously knew him. I go, mate, never, never been to the place Just before. Just a friendly guy. Yeah. But once again, understanding both sides, understanding the security side. So if someone approached me while I was working professionally, mm. I'd go, yeah, mate, here to help you out. Yeah. Yeah, that goes through. So it's just, as you said, the gift of the gab, presence, you know, making sure that uh, yeah, you sell it. It's an interesting thing, and I really want to delve into this. How do you manage, because we'll apply to security first and then to bodyguard work, how do you go with the sleep deprivation? Because personally, you know, when you're younger, you can stay out, you're having fun, you stay out all early hours of the morning. But when you're not partying or you're not drinking and you're there, usually you go home early. Mm. You know, it's, uh, it's not as fun when it gets to 11 o'clock at night, nothing good happens after 3 a.m., but you're there working not partying or anything like that. I still think it should be compulsory when you turn 18 and you go out that you're not allowed to drink for your very first night out yeah. and you just need to stand there all night and watch what security watch. 
Yeah. <laughs> then when you go out drinking, you might have a bit more respect. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we get to see, and believe me, people can't dance as well as they think they can dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely the, the sleep, um, you know, as we always say, burning the candle at both ends. Uh, very hard. Uh, it's about managing it. Uh, managing your downtime. Yeah. Uh, I am very lucky I can power nap anywhere, and yeah. that's just years of doing it. Did you but, train yourself to do that? Yeah, basically fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, but basically I've got the ability, if I can rest my head on something, yeah. I can nod off. Yeah. So I can sit in the car, rest my head. I can't kind of do it without resting my head. I end up you know, sleeping like this and dribbling down the front of my, my shirt. <laughs> but, yeah, I've got that ability just to, to wind down, but yeah. even get to the point of shut down without shutting off. Interesting. Yeah, and, and kind of that recharge. Um, I stay away from energy drinks. I do love my coffee. Yeah. Uh, but I stay away from energy drinks, stuff like that. Um, over the years, learning a lot more about nutrition and stuff like that, making sure I've got some protein bars and you know, good stuff and uh, nuts and, and, and uh, berries and raisins and, and stuff like it's that. It's really I, interesting I about that really well. down-regulation that you're doing because mm. that applies to you know, anyone. Shift work is the works and a lot of high performance in sports, et cetera or they're just working long hours entrepreneurs, they look at things like non-sleep, deep rest, yoga, nidra, some form of meditation to down-regulate, to recharge, as you said, like a nut that people could have during the day yeah. to be able to keep going. And you've you know, developed the skill to be able to do that whenever you need. There'll be different in security when you do it because security is normally a shift. Yeah. So you normally got your – always say in security you have a start time and a rough finishing time. Yeah. Because things can go later. Um, when I H and S came into major events, and I've done so many major events at the showgrounds and um, Flemington, Sydney My Music Bowl, um, you weren't allowed to be rostered for more than twelve hours. Yeah, we know it's a fifteen-hour shift. It's an event. Your first one there, last one on. So you get rostered for twelve. Doesn't mean you're going home after twelve. Yeah, uh, it goes through. So security work is not as bad there because you can manage your shifts. And okay, I'm taking this shift. I know it's a twelve-hour shift. You know, have I got enough travel time, rest time in between doing another one? Can I do back to back? Need the third one off, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I've been in a lot of really good bodyguard jobs that you, you as a depending on your experience, you couldn't do more than three days in a row. Yeah. Um, so the big one we did down in Torquay many years ago. Is this one? I think you told me about driving sleep. Like you were in a yeah, you were in a sleep deprived state. Not that one. That was a different one. That one was okay. Like but being a, a senior guy, I was permitted to do four shifts. Now I would have done five or six shifts a week because it was really good money. Yep. But no, nah, they, they they said I, I think I might have did four or five. But the junior guys were only doing three. Then they had to have a day off. Yeah, yeah, because twelve hour days it, it does catch up with you. Yeah, and, and they started uh, nodding off. The one, the other one was a big one. It was probably the you know the first level five, which when we talk about the levels of risk, yeah, level one is our courtesy level. Level five is playing for keeps. Yeah, uh, we had to put a, a take a client away to a lockdown location, uh, get her out of the city, uh, and we had no idea this was going to happen. So we we're doing the jobs, and we we're probably doing. Well, we're picking the client up at uh, seventeen hundred, so five p.m., and we we're bringing her back to work at eight a.m. the next morning. Mm. So that's a fair shift. Then we could go home and sleep during the day because there's security on at the workplace. Then we had to be back there to pick her up at five. Yeah. And so, so basically we're having eight hours off. So we're working 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So we've done that back to back for a few days and you start to feel it. And uh, the Jason at the time, he was our lead, uh, lead uh, bodyguard. I said, mate, we've got to bring a third person in because it was only me and him doing it. And I said, uh, you know, fatigue levels are starting to drop and da da da. Um, we're there to protect her property as well. So you know what we're carrying because <laughs> we're there to protect property as well as our persons. Uh, so we brought a third person in, which could then rotate. Jason took the first night off uh, being team leader, and he'd actually just come off a big job, so he was quite fatigued. So I finished that shift, um, got home, got back on at uh, 1700, 
and uh, I was going to be relieved at zero one hundred. I thought, oh, beautiful. <laughs> I'm going to head home. I'm just going to like sleep for 14, 15 hours. I didn't have to come back on to 1,700 the next day. Got to midnight. I'm an hour shy of, of knocking off and having a nice big sleep. And I was feeling it and I was hard to keep the eyes open. And we received a level of threat. Mm. Hour before that. I got to bed at 19.30 the next night. Wow. So 20, I think it was 27 and a half hours. How do you manage your state in a situation like that, particularly when there was a real and impending threat? Yeah, no, it was dangerous. Yeah. It was absolutely stupid and absolutely dangerous, but in many sense it's the nature of the job. Yeah. Uh, I can't just tag out and say, sorry, you need to deal with this level of threat yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, I've clocked off. Yeah, I haven't had my beauty sleep. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that time, but is – there was no physical hands-on stuff. A lot of it was sitting around just waiting for someone to make the decision of what was going to happen. Mm. Uh, so we got her out of the house at zero one. So when that relief guy came in, we went three up and we got her out of the house, into the cars. We, we, we escaped we're on the uh, western side of uh, Melbourne. Went for a big drive up through country Victoria. I, I couldn't even tell you where we went. Mm. Uh, I was just doing Talem uh, surveillance driving, anti surveillance driving. We ended up in Lilydale, so from one end of uh, Melbourne to the other. It's about 5 a.m. We got a hotel, mm. woke the poor manager up. <laughs> yeah. We need a room. Uh, may have had half an hour power nap sitting in the chair, uh, but everyone was pretty wired. I uh, took the client. Once uh, the sun was up, made the phone calls back to the, the, uh, the, the company. Mm. What do you want? To, what do you know? This is what's happened overnight, da-da-da, and backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and the decision was made to bring her back to the workplace. It was a very secure workplace. No one knew where we were. No one knew what angle we were coming in. So we did all the risk assessment. So we got her back into the workplace, um, but then they went, don't go, guys, because we don't know what we want to do yet. Mm. So then we just go downstairs, sit at the coffee shop. Yeah. So as much as it's long hours and hours, it's not like we're doing physical labour. Yeah. yeah, but it is sitting around waiting, 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 especially when you're not the power brokers, you're not the decision people, we're the responders. Then about, uh, oh, I think it was about 4 p.m., so we sat there all day. Yeah, they finally come down and said, put her in witness protection. Yeah. Basically get her out of the city, locked down, and that's now up to us to organise because they're, they're our locations. Yeah. So the, no one knew where they were going. No one knew where they were going. So we had to make the phone calls, got the safe house, just in country Victoria, I won't give away the location. And um, got everything done and now it was to get her down there. And as I turned around to Jason, I said, mate, I'm still wearing the same clothes I came to work in yesterday. If we're going to go away for a few days, we're going out towards my place. I just need to nick home yeah. and get something. And my wife at the time, Michelle, always you know, credit her for this. She understood. She understood the, the role I played and all that. And I gave her a phone call and she knew I was on the job, obviously. And I just said, I'm going away, uh, get my bag ready. And she knew that meant three sets of everything. Yeah, she knew the drill. Yeah, she knew the drill. So straight away, socks, jocks, pants, shirts, toiletries, all that was into a bag. So I pulled up in the driveway. Uh, she's standing in the driveway with the bag uh, and a thermos of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, well, well trained. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I, I grabbed it. Yeah, and, and this is where you put a lot of pressure on your, your family. And people talk about, oh, yeah, the dangers that I take on. To me, it's a controlled danger. And when I accept the job, I'm accepting the, the liability that goes with that. But these are your family members. Mm. I've just turned around to my wife. You know, and I've got three young children at the time said, I've got to go away. I don't know how long for. I don't even know the next time I can call you. I'm going to lockdown. Yeah. You know wow. what she said to me? Have fun. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> she knew never to say be safe because she knew I'd always be safe. Yeah, yeah, be careful. She didn't want to put that pressure on me. She goes, yeah, no, have fun. And I was away for, I think it was 72 hours before I rang home. Wow. 
we were locked down that for a few days. That uncertainty be pretty stressful for family. It is, members. yeah, 100%. And this is where I, when people come to me, they say, I want to be a bodyguard. I say, bodyguard's not about you. How does your wife feel about you? You can't be doing bodyguard and if you've got the wife in the ear going, oh, I what time like are you going to be home? You da, had da, da, da. this conversation with me when I was potentially looking at it just around the time that I had a daughter. I feel like this resonates because I was very much focused on wanting to do it just as a personal goal as an mm. experience in life. But yeah, that was the decision that I came to, obviously without understanding it. So you probably shared been my that decision with me. Uh, a lot too. And a lot of people always say to me, "If I travelled overseas, I've had the opportunity a couple of times to go overseas for work, and it hasn't come off for one reason." Uh, and I've really, you know, probably honed my skills to stay here in Australia for that exact reason, having a family. Yeah, uh, being away for a short amount of time is one thing. Going to another country to work uh, is others. And uh, I know a lot of people that travel overseas for work, and I've met them. You know, nothing but respect. Mm. Yeah, you know, to be able to do that and move overseas. So, yeah, there's niche for everybody. Yeah, you know, I say that you've got to find your passion. You got to find what you're good at. You know, there's other people there that are not really good as a bodyguard, as in the escort section, but brilliant bodyguard drivers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, they drive like a chauffeur. We've done you know driving courses over the years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, security personnel are usually really good for advanced surveys. Mm. In other words, advance into the next location to secure that location because that's what security does. They go there, they secure the location. Mm. Then when the VIP arrives, it's easy for the escort team. It's already a secured location. Yeah. Right. Then once you're settled in, that team then advances to the next section. Yeah. So that's in a perfect world. Yeah. Sometimes you're one up. Now I've worked with people, and we talk about dollar value. I've worked for guys that are millionaires but still only want to pay for one security. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so you're sitting there going, well, now I'm taking you to every location we go to. You know, if I've been there before, fantastic. I might have some local knowledge. If you take me to a location I've never been to, how do I do it in advance? Mm. So a lot of times you do it on the way home after a shift. You kind of swing past and check this restaurant out because you, you know you're going to be there Saturday night. So a lot of it's off-the-book stuff. How do you pass the time? I'll give you two contexts. In a security environment, let's say you're at an iClub, I imagine you'd have to be constantly scanning your surroundings mm. and the environment compared to other times where, as you said, you're not the key decision maker and you're simply just there as support in a bodyguard situation. How do you pass the time? Because they're both long shifts. How, what's going through your mind during those times? One thing that I actually do that helps me pass the time is I role play a lot in my head. Yeah. The what ifs. If this happened, what would I do? Okay. If this person did this, how would I approach the situation? Yeah. Uh, and But then I, I even go to the next, okay, this happens, then I do this and you know, I draw my firearm or whatever it might be. Okay, what's the justification of that then? Then I'll go through the justification. If I had to give a statement, what things would I say? So I was constantly reinforcing everything from you know, the observation of a situation to the control or the uh, contact of that situation, then the aftermath. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of security that I've worked with over the years and the good guards and all that lost their licences, not so much for what they did but what they said they did, how okay. they tried to explain what they did. Yeah, is that through use of force? Yeah, and just yeah. just using choosing the wrong word. Yeah. Yeah, and go through and I've heard them say, oh, yeah, he did this, I whacked him. Oh. Yeah. The fact that you've just said whacked him, yeah. mate, you sound like a thug. Yeah. yeah. You, just, you might as well just hand your licence license over now in, in a sense. Yeah, where you know, certain words you avoid to use, you know, even in a in, in an interview. Well, I think that's something that carries over to being a master of your craft in any field, because you are rehearsing scenarios in Definitely. your head consistently. And you might say incidents are few and far between, but you're mentally preparing for them all the time. Mental for visualization preparation man. and everything else as well. 
I can't stress mental preparation enough. And I talked to other guys. I said, well, you're sitting here. What do you think about it? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Or they're just playing on the phone or anything like that. Yeah. And I'm thinking about a guy coming over that fence and what would I do? How would I you know, approach the situation? Yeah. Um, I was talking actually doing some boxing training on Sunday with, with Masters. A big shout out to, to Wayne. Or oh, Wayne wants to be on your show too. Yeah. Mate. So a big shout out to Wayne and uh, all the boys from uh, for Masters. Um, and uh, I lost my train of thought. Then what was I going to say? Oh, we're going to talk. Yeah. Anytime I approach somebody, the first thing I look at is how long his arms are. Yeah. And I say, as soon as someone's mucking around, but even I could look at someone and go, oh, he's getting a little bit rowdy or whatever, yeah. and I already start mapping him out. Now, does that yeah. hypervigilance carry over to the rest of your life or only when you're on the job? Nah, mate. It was funny. Somebody posted a question in one of our security pages on Facebook, when do you switch on for your job? And I said, oh, when you've been doing a long time, you kind of switch on, I kind of get your roster and you go, yeah, I know that venue, yeah, that's all okay. I said, I don't have a problem switching on, it's switching off. Yeah. Right, and uh, I'd walk through the shop and said, I still do it now, and I'd be walking with someone going, you see that? Just knock something off. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd go, where, where, where? Yeah. Or I'd be standing there and I'd be going, come on, let's go. I'd go, no, not yet, not yet. And this, this young fella's just about to knock something off. You know, read his body language, he's a sheepy ass. So you do start to see things unfold or you start yeah. to see things that other people just have missed. So that attention to detail. So it's not a job for you. It's actually, it's a way of being. It's, it's, it's essentially, it would have affected your whole nervous system development, the way you're thinking of it. You it's, just wired that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because that applies to anything. Anyone that's successful in any area of life, there, there is an obsession about it where, where they're yeah. always on. And then the hard part is when can you switch it off? Like I when often can you think, oh, yeah. Only 52 now, I might try something different. Nah, that thought's gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back to role playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, because um, I, I butchered for 10 years, so 20, uh, 16 to 26, now when I got into security, I remember being in security for 10 years. And I was talking to my mentor, Tony Saliski, who was my very first trainer. Uh, I say, Tony, you, you, I've known you the longest out of anybody because you're, you're my trainer on day one. And I said to him after 10 years, oh, I've been doing security 10 years now. And he goes, you're joking, aren't you? I said, well, I did butchering for 10 years, do security for 10 years. Might be something, you know, time to do something else. And he just looked at me and shook his head. He goes, no, nah, mate, you found your niche. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's 15 years ago now. So Yeah, that's that's. Uh, mm. I'm glad that you're still enjoying it. And uh, I'm mate, sure you're going to explore it in other areas as well. Uh, to me, I still get the buzz out of helping people and communicating and that. And even um, the, the house pay I did the other week, you know, obviously she didn't want security there, 15-year-old rah, rah. Uh, she gave me a call you know, in the week leading up to it and I you know, just have talked to her listen we're not here to protect you we're not here to run your party we're not here to, to tell you what to do I'm not your babysitter I'm not your dad we're here to make sure nothing goes wrong mm. we want this night to be your best night ever I'm here so people at your school talk about your party and, and probably talk about the big security guy that you hired at the same time. I'm not here to, to upset your night. I'm here to make sure your night goes good. And she, was, she loved it and yeah. went back to her dad and, oh, I just spoke to David. It was really good. So is that reinsurance? Yeah. How do you manage your emotions in two situations? When you're facing a conflictive <coughs> situation where there is violence, I know – a lot of people, they do training, and this carries over to martial artists that get, you know, in a real-world situation where they're faced with real violence and the adrenaline kicks in, cortisol kicks in, they lose control of their fine motor skills. All these things happen, and they can't do the things that they've been practicing in training. Mm. How do you manage your emotional state in something like that when there is real yeah, violence? Yeah, it's hard to talk to every, about that to everybody because some people just can't. Yeah. Um, I've been lucky. I, I studied emotional intelligence mm. uh, very early on in my career. I had a, uh, a client uh, that I looked after, and she was one of the pioneers uh, mm. of emotional intelligence. And uh, she actually said, told me one day, she goes, you're very high in emotional intelligence. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was actually looking after her at the time. So, 
Yeah, she goes, oh, when you're ready, we'll, we'll dive into it. And being the, the bodyguard, I was like, yeah, I'm ready, right, right. And as soon as she started off, I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was more the fact that because I was working, I was in my bodyguard mode. Yep. So when I'm working as bodyguard, uh, I'm not dry or emotionless, but I'm shielded. Yeah. Right, so if you talk, talk, ask me about my kids, happy to sit here and talk about my kids. If I'm on bodyguard job, something says you got kids, I go, yep. You know, it's funny. I- because <laughs> when I break it, when I talk about them, it breaks down that that armor I need to be wearing, that emotional yeah. side. So understand the emotion. So the first first key of, of crowd control is self control. Mm. If you don't have self control, you can't do crowd control. Yeah, easy as that. Right, and you find the ones out there that don't have self control start to do crowd control. They're out the door. Lose the license. Use of force. They're gone. So ones that have that self-control, which is controlling their emotions, yeah. in order to do crowd control. Yep. And you get people that will tell somebody else, they'll go, mate, stop your effing swearing. And I go, mate, hang on, you've just told that person to stop swearing and you swore at him yeah. while you're doing it. So where's your self-control? Yep. Yeah, it, it goes It's through. interesting. So obviously there's a lot of people out there, even when there's not a physical confrontation, there's a lot of verbal attacks that uh, security guards are subjected yeah, to. 100%. How do they manage their state? Is there training in terms of this? Because obviously you said you yeah. learned from a particular well, client that you had. Emotional intelligence, and one of the best things I, I say to guards, and I, I still say guards now when I'm training them, have you got a full-size mirror at home? Mm. They go, yes, yeah, so I want you to stand in, in front of that full-size mirror. Just think that's the guy that you threw you out of the nightclub, and I want you to hang shit on him. <laughs> yeah. I want you to yeah. barrel him. Yeah. And I guarantee you, you'll pick the easiest target possible. Yeah. It'll be an age thing, a weight thing, a colour thing, a hair thing. Yeah. Because they're easy. So when they say, oh, you're black bugger, nigga, I know that. Yeah. So you build <laughs> that proud. resilience yeah. because you've rehearsed it and you've role-played it. If, they, if you look at something and you call yourself a fat bugger because you're carrying a few extra pounds and you get upset, ah, there's the emotion. There's the hook. Yeah. If you're subconsciously going, oh, I don't like the way I'm carrying my weight at the moment, as soon as the first person says, oh, you're a fat bugger, oh, what do you say? Yeah. Right? So if you don't like what you see in that mirror, do something about it. Because what you see is what everyone else sees. And they pick the easiest target. Yeah. So when they do it, I go, really? You're going to pick on my hair? It's not like I get up every morning and go to comb and go, oh, that's right, mate. Yeah. I said, but then again, my mum gave me a comb for Christmas and I'd never part with it. Yeah. The role playing is a great analogy. And I think it carries, like I've seen a lot of people do it in other areas, not just security, but it's a... It's an interesting thing because, as you said, people will go for the easy targets. And you know what? You're going to be your own worst critic. So if you can actually back yourself up, face the mirror and hang shit on yourself. that's the best way of making it. Because whatever you see is what everyone else gets. Yeah. So And they'll they'll pick something. So if you're a certain nationality, I'm sure you're proud of that nationality. So who cares what this idiot calls you if you're proud of who you are? Yeah. Right, one of big Maori guy used to work for me, Jamie, great bloke, lovely bloke, big teddy bear, 145 kilo teddy bear. But if he pushed his buttons as a Maori, he'd get upset. And, and someone called him a fat C one day on the door, and I was like, "Oh, that's not the word I choose." Yeah, <laughs> and he just started chuckling. Yeah, right. And when he chuckled, everything chuckled. Yeah, right. And he just looked at the bloke and go, "Yep, I am." Yeah, <laughs> because he was proud. He didn't care. Yeah. So this guy's trying to upset him by calling him a fat C. Jamie knew he was a big man. Yeah. So he just laughed. What's the point getting upset about it? And Jamie would say something like, uh, "Yeah, mate, I am, but I could lose weight and uh, I could go on a diet and lose weight, and you're going to wake up ugly every day." That's <laughs> <laughs> some interesting points in relation to self worth, appreciation, acceptance as well. Because if you're comfortable in your own skin, 
then the ammo that people are firing at you, it's going to just bounce off you. Mate, yeah, and it's it's also an image of your profession. Mm. Yeah, and I see guys that are very overweight doing the profession and they can't stand for long periods and stuff like that. Yeah, mate, yeah, that's what everyone has to see. And you're portraying this person of responsibility security officer. Well, you're not looking after yourself. Mm. You know, how, you, how you expect to look after somebody else? How much does that impact situations with conflict? If a person has got stress outside of the, the job, like at home, relationship stresses, family stresses, and financial and things like that, how does that impact their presence as a guard? Yeah, presence, everything, mate. How moody they are, their emotions. I mean, we've all been there. No one's bulletproof yeah, to We that. have bad days. Everyone, no, has. everyone has bad days. Now, we always say when you sign on and grab your crowd control number, leave it all at, all at the door. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, through time and, you know, something that over the last, you know, five and six years you, you see a lot more of, mate, I'm having a bad day today. Yeah, you get to work, say, buddy, <laughs> I'm having a bad day. Get me back a little bit more today. We go back early days, mate, you know, you couldn't tell another guard that you were having a bad day. Everybody was switched on. So yeah. a lot more teamwork, a lot more, you know, what I say, love and hugs, yeah, in the industry than, than the so old So there's a lot of connection days. now between Definitely, guys. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I find, especially the older guys, you know, they've been in the industry for a while now, mm-hmm. uh, goes through. But, yeah, a big thing in the industry is what I was used to refer to as operational fitness. Mm. So, and I'd say, oh, you've got to have operational fitness to work in security. And people say, oh, I go to the gym five times, I've got nothing to do with it. <laughs> so what is your definition of operational fitness when it comes to security? Uh, based on the job. So my job requirement for the next eight hours requires me to stand. Yeah. So I've got to be fit enough to stand. Yeah. And that's hard. That's hard on body. Yeah. I know guards that can't stand for more than 25 minutes at a time. Yeah. You go, mate, operational fitness, mate. What part of you're working on the so door? Would you stand for 12 hours? Hey. Would you stand for 12 oh, hours? Oh, mate, yeah. I'd have to lay down for three days afterwards. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, but now what now it is, I wouldn't expect someone to. So now it's making sure we can rotate from those yeah. spots. Back in the day, mate, yeah, you, you get a lot of uh, old time security will be deaf in one ear. Mm. because his spot was, you know, left-hand side of the, the speaker and he wouldn't move. Yeah. That was his spot. Now yeah. you rotate people around. You will have a spot where you can get off your feet. Yeah. You don't want to be up too close to the music all the time. Now earplugs and all that kind of stuff. So H&S played a big part in it. Mm. Um, the opposite side to that is you might be on a job that requires you to sit in your car for eight hours. Mm. I struggle with that. Would that be a security guard, private investigator? Or? Especially investigator doing um, surveillance. I, I was on a job, uh, two-up surveillance job many years ago, and the guy kept getting out of his car every 25 minutes to stretch his legs. I go, mate, what's the definition of covert to you? Mm. Like every time you open your car door, you get out of the, you know, you, you're just raising the red flag. Mm. You know, you've got to be down. So some people can't sit still. Yeah. What do you uh, do for toilet breaks when you're sitting in the car for that yeah, long? Yeah, a bottle in the, uh, in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that. I use the big um, uh, apple juice bottles. It's got a wider wider top at the top. <laughs> there is something else I wanted to delve into. I don't know if we're going to have enough time to ask all the questions mm. about this particular thing. But it was an interesting thing that we've talked about many times just over the years in relation to the bodyguard training that you ran at one point and some of your findings of that. Can you run us through what was actually involved with that particular training course? Yeah, we discussed this the other day actually. Um, yeah, I pioneered what we call a bodyguard boot camp. Mm. And uh, one thing, uh, doing so much training over the years, you go to training course, you know, nine to five, you go home, you get into your life and you kind of forget everything you kind of did that day and you get home with the kids and dinner and do everything else and you wake up in the morning, you get yourself ready, you lumber in with a cup of coffee and you start your training the next day. I thought, no, that's okay for a nine to five job or security job, but it's a shift job. Bodyguard's not nine to five. Mm. Bodyguard is odd hours, long hours, short hours and all that. So I probably need a, a course where to be on the course, you have to actually live on site uh, for the duration, for the, for the 11 days. Mm. 
So start on the Saturday night. Uh, where people from all over Australia fly in. So guys from Queensland flew down for it. It was ran here in uh, Melbourne. Guys from WA flew across for it. Uh, a couple from Sydney. And we had some uh, locals as well from, from Melbourne. Uh, one of the locals, oh, can I go home each night? I go, no. <laughs> you know, the whole idea was to be on site and to run a course 24-7. Um, because in a lot of worlds, that's what bodyguard is. I mentioned before, I went 27 and a half hours. You know, and that was just on that shift. Yeah, before I actually put my head down. And I only slept for four hours because other guys needed sleep. Mm. Yeah, so we started on the Saturday night, got all the uh, admin out of the way on the Saturday night, uh, got the introductions and all that out of the way Saturday night, um, got the pizzas in and said, enjoy your night, come 0600 in the morning, you're mine right. through to 0600 next Sunday. <laughs> you can't leave site without permission. You know, we're allowed smoking in the grounds, no alcohol for the week. Yep. Um, everything was structured, uh, the food was supplied, um, but we've got to cook. So everyone, you know, work out who cooks, who cleans, work in teams. Uh, so the training basically started at 0600 in the morning. We had two hours of defensive tactics training first up, hand-to-hand combat, which we run by our uh, DT instructors. Uh, at 8 o'clock, we had one hour to break, shower, change, have your breakfast, be back in the classroom at 0900. Mm. Not 0901. Back in there, sitting down at 0900. Then you go through your day and we do our training and, you know, break from lunch and people go cook some lunch and it might be 45 minutes, an hour for lunch. But then I throw a curveball in about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I go, oh, your client's just gone into a meeting for 45 minutes. You now have downtime. Yeah, you've just dropped him off at the meeting. He says, I'll be 45 minutes. Come and get me. And how did they spend it, the different <sighs> characters that were there? Mate, yeah, some of them hit the hay. Some of them were able to power nap. Some couldn't power nap, so they read a book. Some just went for a stroll around the uh, the car park. Uh, but one thing they did do after a couple of days is eat. Yeah. <laughs> they started eating. Um, yeah, but what was annoying, there was one guy there that, you know, used to love having a chat, and he'd be just sitting there, da, 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 da. I go, mate, what part of 45 minutes downtime, don't you understand? Yeah. Even though I might not be talking, if I'm listening, I'm not relaxing. Yeah. You know, so it's that one of the worst things when you have that downtime, someone wants to talk to you, you go, mate, I've just got 45 minutes here. And we're up and down, we're doing all the exercises and, and, and practical exercises thing. And uh, 0600 would break for dinner and we're two hours break for dinner. So they broke into teams, so they had to do the cooking. So one half did the cooking, the other half did the cleaning afterwards. And it was dishes done, everything cleaner. We had two hours to get it squared away back in the classroom uh, at 2000. Yeah. Right? And the last two hours was pretty well just around the table discussions. And we had some guys on the course that's a really good experience and overseas experience. And I uh, first met uh, Russell Price on that course, magnificent bloke. Uh, a lot of overseas experience. And that's how you talk through different jobs and da da da. And we put a movie on, watch Bodyguard and a few movies and pick out of it and <laughs> there's always good uh, good parts of it so that was like that two hour part and then 2200 so we started at 06 2200 was official stand down however someone has to be patrolling so in two up rotations they had to do two hour rotations guarding outside while everyone else got sleep so someone two of them had to do the the 20 uh, 10 o'clock to midnight midnight to two two to four four to six so whoever did the four to six had to roll straight into the day so it was shortened down. Some guys doing the middle, so you might get a couple hours sleep, had to wake up, do your two hours patrols, two hours sleep. Whatever patrol you did the first night, you had to do the second one. So if you did the 10 to 12, you yep. couldn't do that every night because that's yep. the easy one. Then you had to do the 12 to 2. So it's like, oh, I've got two hours. Do I try to sleep, get back up? Do I just sit up, etc. And we just rolled that for a few nights. And, uh, man, you started seeing people change under that stress of broken sleep and sleep depression. Dave, we have run out of time, oh, but mate. but – 
we're going to have to have you back to talk about all the observations <clears throat> and all the things that actually happened based on that experiment, Mate, that that's, program uh, that you described. Because I found it fascinating learning about it. I, I want to do it in the future as a personal development challenge. I love things like that. Yep. We've uh, spoken about it a lot, but there was a lot of interesting findings. That can't be an hour. It was, a, it was a quick <laughs> hour, man. It went very quickly. But I hope you enjoyed it for Mate, everyone. Uh, David Rossborough. Ross Burra. Ross Burra. Ross Burra. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that long, I still get it wrong. But uh, guys, he will be back again. If you enjoyed it, leave some comments. It'll be up on Spotify, Audible, Apple, and SoundCloud. Also, check out the Radio Carom app and website. I hope you had fun, David. Loved it, mate. Happy to come back again. Legend. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Carom. Stay tuned. Oi. 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 IGA is shopping nights. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker.